Are you pregnant or a new parent looking to ensure a better postpartum experience? Or are you a birth worker looking to improve your postpartum care skills? Check out Thriving After Birth, an online self-paced course by me, midwife and educator Tanya Tringali. It's 10 and a half hours of video content featuring experts in lactation, mental health, pelvic floor health, pediatric sleep issues. You also get worksheets and a workbook, as well as options to have a one-on-one session with me. Sign up at motherwitmaternity.com slash thriving, and let's improve postpartum care together. She's a midwife who was trained in South Africa. She had her first baby there and her second in the U.S. She's also the owner and founder of Fourth Trimester Fitness Method, which she'll tell us more about as she shares her story. This is the fourth and final birth story for this season. I hope you enjoy it. Oh, and a gentle reminder that nothing we discuss on this show should ever be considered medical advice. Please speak to your local provider about anything that comes up in this show that resonates with you and your needs and your health care. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to hearing your story. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to share my journey from uh, beginning of my career through having my children and into what I'm doing now. Awesome. Well, on that note, I would love it if you would tell us a little bit about yourself, whatever personal details you're comfortable sharing. I'd love to hear a little bit about how it is that you came to become a midwife. I definitely want our listeners to hear about your current business, Fourth Trimester Fitness. Um, However, if they all kind of roll into your birth stories in various ways, you tell me you're the boss, you tell your story, however it suits you. Yeah, um, they do kind of all roll and and circulate around one another. Um, So really, my journey into birth work and into what I'm doing now became, um, really began when I was 13. Um, I grew up living all over the world as a child. My dad worked for the United Nations, so we traveled quite a bit. And um, when I was 13, we were living in Pakistan. And during that time, my parents were friends with a medical missionary there and his sister came over to visit him and work for a while in Peshawar while he was there. And so I got to meet her and it just turned out that she was a missionary midwife. So at the age of 13, I kind of got to hear her stories and I had always loved babies, you know, just as a kid, I was always the one who uh, wanted to be the mother's helper and, and, involved in that and the mystery of pregnancy and birth. I mean, this will just tell you how naive I was. Um, In seventh grade, my math teacher was pregnant with twins and I had no clue until she was gone on maternity leave. So I had no education about pregnancy. I just was enamored by the whole concept of babies. So you're sit your way. I'm just making sure I'm following what you're trying to say here. Maybe I'm being dense. You're saying you watched your teacher get to term or close to term with twins and you were clueless? Clueless. 
clueless, which I look back now and I think it is so funny that that is actually what happened. Um, and that was when I was, I was 12. Then when I was 13, I was living in Pakistan. I met this missionary midwife and I began to hear her stories. And I remember thinking at the time, that is what I want to do with my life. That is what I want to do when I grow up. How do I get to do this? And so I actually went to nursing school so that I could become a midwife. I didn't know that there were other routes to midwifery practices. I just thought in my mind, okay, I go to nursing school and then I go and, and I go to midwifery school. And that's how I get to do what I want to do. Where were you living at the time? So when I went to nursing and midwifery school, I was living in South Africa. Okay. So, yeah. So I was trained under the British system, pretty much where your very first day of nursing school, you know, you're wearing your, your little white uniform and your ugly shoes and brown stockings and the paper nursing cap. And all you do is take temperatures and, and blood pressures. <laughs> But you are thrown in the deep end into the unit. And I think the beauty of that for someone who learns the way I do, which is very kinesthetic, um, very auditory visual learner, um, it was the perfect thing. And, and, and in many ways, I think it was a really great way for many, um, many of the nursing students because very quickly you know um, how you respond and feel about illness, how you respond and feel about death. Um, and is this going to be the career for you? And for me, I loved it from day one. I, I could not get enough of it. Um, so after I finished my nursing um, diploma at that time is how it was in South Africa, then I went on to do midwif midwifery. In between nursing and midwifery, I spent some time um, out in the bush with my husband, who was a military physician at the time, and he was um, at one of the little mission hospitals um, as a military doctor. He was the only physician. Um, and so I took some time off of work at the hospital that I was working at because we had been married six months and had not yet lived together. And I was like, I want to, I want to be with my husband. So I went out to this missionary hospital and that was my first exposure to Bush midwives. And by that, what I mean is that they were trained staff nurses who had specialty training in midwifery skills. And I'm just going to tell you that those gals could get a baby out of anybody because um, the babies that came, the, the, the mothers who arrived at that little hospital, the reason they arrived was because they'd already exhausted their other options out in the bush. And so if these gals weren't able to birth these, these babies, then the next option was a five hour ride in the back of a pickup truck on, on a mattress to hospital facility where they could do, do a cesarean because my husband was not able to because he was the only physician. When he did surgical procedures there at this mission hospital, I acted as the anesthesiologist, which really meant we lined up all the things and he told me what syringe to give when. And that, that was my job at the time. It was, it was rough. It was rough 
medicine. <laughs> um, but we both look back on that time as an incredible time of growth and excitement. We, you know, we were young in our early 20s. Um, we, we laugh now because um, the on-call system was, we would hear the crunch of gravel as one of the staff would walk down towards our little house and the knock on the window. And they would say, oh, doctor, we need you. <laughs> and that would mean your beeper's going off, come on. Um, for me, my experience was in the midwifery, I almost wanna call it a hut, but it was almost like a double wide trailer um, with about five beds in it. And, and the mothers were top to tail, as we would say, which meant two moms to a bed, a head on each end. Um, they birthed the babies that way and they postpartumed that way. Um, but that was where I learned how to put my hands on a belly to do Leopold's. I just want to chime in for a second on defining Leopold's. So Leopold's maneuver is what people who catch babies, midwives, OBs, anyone else who might catch babies, calls a very particular way in which we put our hands on a belly with the intention of assessing fetal position. It's actually a really systematic process. And, you know, I think a lot of people these days think that we need a sonogram to know what position the baby's in. But skilled hands are just about as good. Um, and I think that's really important for people to know. Um, there are four steps in this process, and we are very, very, very systematic about how we do it. We feel at the top, and we say, what do we feel in there? And we kind of, not kind of, we really know the difference between what a tushy feels like and what a head feels like. So we've got that. Then we sort of feel down the sides and feel which side the back is on and which side the feet are on. And then there's two different ways we actually feel for the head. Um, so I just wanted you guys to know what that was because that's a really important step in our midwifery journeys. I learned the importance of that because you have nothing but your head and your hands when you're out in an area like that. So I learned to really listen to what my hands were telling me in the Leopolds, um, listen to what um, our patient was telling us, listen to what the baby was telling us. Um, it's where I did my first internal exams and um, I had just recently posted a little reel on where I learned the tip about when you're doing an internal exam and trying to figure out how many centimeters that woman is dilated, to not think about the hand that is examining, but to look at your other hand and then bring out and boom, how they match up. And that, you know, that was a Bushman wife who gave me that tip. Um, so after that experience, then I went on to midwifery school and Yes, go Can ahead. You tell us, I just want to frame things in terms of the time frame here because we haven't really <clears throat> talked about that yet. How oh. old are you? What year is it? <laughs> yeah, okay. I am at that point, I think I was 25 and this is the mid 80s. So different time, right? Different style of practice. Um, so that was, yes, that was the time frame. That was a good question for sure. Um, so I, I came back from that experience out in the bush and went to midwifery school 
um, at the same hospital that I had done my training for nursing at. And I just was in heaven. I loved every minute of it. Um, really had some fabulous instructors, some fabulous training in my opinion. Um, you really had to, again, be um, very in tune to what the clues were that your patient was giving you. You had to be very in tune to what your hands were telling you. Um, it was just a different time. We did all of the um, normal birth scenarios. So, and, and at the hospital that we were working at, the midwives delivered almost everything. We only called the OB in for problems. Um, so we, we did everything. Um, and after my training, about a year after my training, I was pregnant with my first child um, and went on to have her in the same hospital that I trained in. And um, one of my best girlfriends, who was actually one of my midwifery tutors and mentors, was my midwife. So that kind of brings us around to my birth story. Um, <clears throat> I entered it in also a very, I want to say almost surprisingly a naive way, kind of like I'm pregnant, I'm going to have a midwife, I'm going to have a hospital birth with, with my midwife, who's my, one of my best girlfriends. And that's how we're going to do it. And at that point, what you had seen in the bush, like none of that made you fearful. It made you feel more like babies just come out. That's what they do. Sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's harder, but they just come out. Is that kind of where you were at? It was, you know, I never, I never feared going into that birth. Not even a minute, interestingly. Um, and, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that during my pregnancy, I had been exposed to cytomegalovirus in the NICU. Um, and so I had actually gone through a number of ultrasounds because they were tracking the growth of, of my baby. And even with that, I was like, she's fine. She's doing great. No problems. Um, I had been... Uh, high school and, and college athlete, I felt like I'm in great shape. I'm going to do this thing. Um, so I went, you know, found myself in labor, um, laboring along like many first time mamas do, kind of slow and steady <laughs> um, and slow and steady and slow and steady. Um, and turns out that I had a direct OP baby with a nuchal hand. Okay. Chiming in again. I put something in the show notes on cytomegalovirus. I don't want anybody to get too nervous about that. Um, cytomegalovirus is actually something that many, many people have actually had prior to being pregnant. And then it's not an issue. It's only an issue if you've never had it before, but many, many people do. Anyway, there's more information in the show notes. Um, now what she just said, an OP baby with a nuchal hand. So I just want to make sure everybody's following. 
occiput posterior is what OP stands for. And that's when a baby's facing, the head is down, but the face is facing forward. And we prefer that babies face the back. Now, of course, some people's pelvises are predisposed to this, and then that's just the way it is. But, you know, we tend to think that OP babies cause harder labors, and the diameter of their head being born is actually bigger because the head can't flex the same way it can when it is occiput anterior. So she had an OP baby, and it kept its little hand up by its head. So you could put your hand on your head and look at where your elbow is. So now this baby's got that angle that it's got to get out also. So now you can frame the situation a little better. Right. Um, about, I'm trying to think how many, I, I don't actually remember how many hours into labor because I think I was just in labor land. Um, I decided to get an epidural. And then I had an epidural that worked on one side and even with rolling, it didn't cover. Um, so that was, that was an interesting sensation. Like it just was bizarre. Well, and in my experience, people who get an epidural and have that exact case are almost more unhappy because it's so weird to feel pain on half of your body. Yeah, it was very weird. <laughs> and and the interesting thing is, is that with my second baby, I spent every single contraction that I experienced with my second baby, I would say to myself, almost giving myself permission, um, if the next one's not better, you can have an epidural, but you probably don't want that. I said that time and time again, my husband was like, what are you saying? And I just said, I'm just saying if the next one's not better, I can have an epidural. I love that strategy. I, I actually, I use a similar one to help people quit smoking that has worked a couple times for people, which is just tell yourself when you crave a cigarette, if I still want it in five minutes, I'll have it. I promise you'll get distracted. <laughs> but if five minutes passes, you have to start a clock all over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, and it, you know, worked just beautifully. <laughs> I went through the whole second labor and, you know, went unmedicated and, and never got to the point where I felt like this is, I'm ready for the next thing. I just was satisfied with my little mantra of if the next one's not better, I can have an epidural. You know, just giving myself that permission, I think freed me to not stress over it. But back to my first labor, because this was, this was a, you know, like many, many of us, it's such a pivotal moment in our mothering, in our um, personal interactions with our, with our significant other, and, and indeed with our kind of life journey. Um, after I had her, I had a postpartum hemorrhage um, and had multiple units of blood, um, and then went and had a secondary postpartum hemorrhage later on, um, weeks in the weeks after. And I remember being so shocked by that. Um, and I, funny enough, like some people were like, oh, were you traumatized by that? And I said, you know, <laughs> funny enough, I don't think so. I think I was more surprised. I thought I was just going to sail through postpartum 
like I did my pregnancy. Um, so wait, take me back for just a sec because I feel like I lost the thread a little bit. So you okay. got an epidural, you had the, you know, half of your body got pain relief. What happened then? And a, a, a uh, more or less, how long had you been in labor at that point? I know you said you were in labor land and don't know, but like, are we talking 12 hours, 24 hours, two days, like ballpark? Yeah, no, I think around the 18 hour mark. Okay, so 18 hours is when you get your epidural that only works on half of your body. And then how long did you labor and what, what do you think ended up helping you get to a, a vaginal delivery? Like what, what happened from that point to the next? Yeah, so I continued laboring. Um, I, I think what I was not able to do, and I, and I do think that in my circumstance, it was not as much the OP as it was the nuchal hand, um, because I, my second baby was also OP, and I just think I have an OP pelvis that favors OP babies. I don't think it's, you know, I always say, oh, I don't personally believe that um, an OP baby is, as you know, some people are like, oh, it's an OP baby. And I'm like, if it's not causing any problem, it's not a problem, right? Some, everyone's pelvises are a little bit different. I do think maybe I just have a pelvis that favors an OP baby. I do think it was the nuchal hand that was slowing things up. Um, and funny enough, when we looked back at some of the ultrasounds that I had, she was sucking her thumb every single time. And so she came out like this, right? That thumb by her mouth and her hand on, on the side of her cheek. And she was almost a nine pound baby for my first baby. So she was, she was a chunker, you know, she had those good, healthy, chunky cheeks. And, um, and I really think I had a hard time getting her around my pubic bone. Um, and indeed ended up needing a vacuum assist with that. So how um, long did you push? How long was the second stage in total? Yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea of that you whatsoever. You can't remember or do you think you never knew? I think I never knew. Wow. I think I never knew. Um, I, I think I am very much a person who thinks about let's take one contraction at a time. Let's get through that one and then prepare for the next. And I did that in my pregnant, in my births. Um, and when I am working with my clients, I suggest that they think about that the same way. Don't get ahead of yourself. You don't know how many there will be. Um, let's just do the one that's at hand right now. When it's done, it's gone, prepare for the next. And I, yeah. I, and I faced my own labors the same way. Um, so, once, once that vacuum helped her get around that pubic bone, we were crowned. Um, I think that her hand and elbow just gave me a good swipe on the way through. Um, I had a third degree tear with an episiotomy because you know, it was the eighties. We did those episiotomies like nobody's business. Um, did you as a midwife do a lot of episiotomies? Oh yeah. Everybody, everybody got an episiotomy at that at that stage. You know, the the thought process was that that was the better way. Um, I, the only thing I can say is that we got really good at suturing. <laughs> you know, when you want to look at the positive side, like okay, unfortunately, we cut all those episiotomies, which we know there's issues with that, and I struggled with that. I definitely had perineal scarring, dyspareunia a lot of uh, perineal pain. 
Um, <clears throat> but um, so after she was born, then I think, and this is this is the part that takes me into what I do today. Um, I remember thinking, I'm a nurse midwife. I've worked in the NICU. My husband's a physician. We should know what to do. We've got this. And I could not have been more wrong. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, and everything was a surprise to me. It was completely eye-opening to me, the postpartum experience. Um, in, in every domain of my life, socially, physically, um, in every way. I really, I did not know who I was. Um, and I and I was living in a foreign country with no immediate, like my sisters weren't there. My mom wasn't there. Um, my mother-in-law was, my husband is South African born and raised. Um, but I didn't have my sisters with me. And you know, that was in the mid eighties, right? Couldn't FaceTime them, couldn't Zoom with them, couldn't, you know, a telephone call was expensive. Um, though I do remember calling one of my sisters when my milk came in because as a smaller chested woman, I was also so shocked that I actually could have cleavage and look like Dolly Parton. Um, <laughs> I mean, well, it was I, just, like, I think I've said this on another episode, maybe, but I remind people never, ever, ever buy bras in advance or even right when your milk comes in, because I also small breasted person, uh, was a D for a day. That's my, my, my motto. I was a D for a day. I went and D bought bras and thought it was so cool. And then I was like, oh, they're gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that when I look back on it now, I always think this is so interesting to me. I never doubted my ability to, to breastfeed. Um, I didn't even honestly think about it that much. I just popped that baby on the boob. <laughs> um, we didn't think about tongue ties. We didn't think about latch. Um, did everything go smoothly? Everything went smoothly. And perfect. I had, you know, it was perfect. I, and I, I always joke that I had milk for Africa. I had so much milk and it had to be full cream because that little girl was a chunker <laughs> and she just continued to chunk. Um, so fortunately the nursing aspect went well, which is quite surprising in many ways to me because of the postpartum hemorrhage and secondary hemorrhage. Um, and so that is always a little bit surprising to me now that I have more education in lactation. Um, so that, that was really my first birth story. The, the way that impacted me in my business that I have now is that one- Well, tell us about your business real quick, just so people okay. can relate to what you're saying. Okay, so I have a business called Fourth Trimester Fitness Method. Um, I opened the doors of Fourth Trimester Fitness in about the year 2000. 
Um, and here's a funny story. So one of my sisters is a nurse. And I said to her at the time, I was a personal training trainer, and I was working mainly with the pregnant and postpartum population. Um, and I said to her, I thought of the cleverest name for my business. I said, I think I'm going to call it fourth trimester fitness. And she looked at me and she said, Emily, you know, there's only three trimesters to pregnancy, right? And I said, yes. I said, but I feel like there's this fourth trimester that lasts us for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and I said, so I feel like when I talk about the four trimesters, I'm, I'm thinking of like these four seasons of a woman's life, but also four trimesters. Um, so not just in pregnancy, first, second, third, and then postpartum, but these seasons where, you know, before you ever experience pregnancy, then you experience pregnancy, then you experience postpartum, and then you experience what I like to call post-postpartum, um, you know, moving through the menopause years. And, and I said, there are issues that go along with each of those seasons. Um, I had a great interest in um, pelvic floor dysfunction, um, how it affected the domains of your life. Um, it was kind of whenever it was all just, well, actually, even in the early season of pelvic floor physical therapy coming to life. Um, but I knew that I had a number of clients who were experiencing urinary incontinence. They were experiencing um, pelvic organ prolapse. Um, and many of them, whether they you know, knew it or not, all felt like it, they would say, this began after I had a baby. Um, and I know that that's not just the only way that th these issues occur. Um, of course, it, but it's a bulk of the way. It's, it's, it's a, a turning point for a statistically significant portion of people. Correct, correct. And so what I was seeing, particularly when I was working with um, my perinatal triathletes. Um, one of the classes that we teach, so I'll, I'll back up a little bit. So tr fourth trimester fitness method came about because we have three um, classes that we teach. The first one is called birth ball basics. And it's a class that is for pregnant people in all trimesters. It is to help them physically strengthen during their pregnancy using the birth ball. Um, and then to physically prepare and understand and be educated how to use the birth ball and the peanut ball in their labor and birth. And everything that we do is evidence-based. We share the studies with them. We, our goal is to empower them with, with knowledge so that when they're entering into their labor and birth, they know why they are doing things, not just oh, I sit on my ball and I circle my hips, but they know why do you sit on the ball in this way? Why do you circle your hips this way? Why do you place your feet in this position? How do you use the peanut ball at different stages of your labor to open the inlet, open the outlet, progress your labor? Um, that's birth ball basics. Postpartum recovery was really the first class that, that I created um, and it came about because of my work with perinatal triathletes. I would work with them through their pregnancy. And then I was getting a telephone call 
you know, 10 days after they had a baby. Emily, I just tried to go for a run and I'm peeing in my pants. And I'd say, okay, first of all, you just had a baby 10 days ago. Um, let's think of ways that we can help your athlete brain um, recover from your, your, your birth. So I started realizing that it's not that you, you can't wait till the six weeks appointment for, for this particular group of women that I was working with. Um, I needed to provide them something that was evidence-based because I, I'm an evidence-based person, um, but provide them with goal-oriented, progressive, you know, quote-unquote exercises that they could do that helped them feel like they were actively working towards their recovery and actively working towards getting back to what they love to do. So that was where postpartum recovery started. Um, it soon grew from there because I realized, first of all, this is not just for the postpartum triathlete. This is for every postpartum person because whether it is that you wanna get back to the Iron Man or jazzercise or to just push your stroller with your baby while you walk with a girlfriend, there are things that you can be doing literally from day one to help progress your recovery physically, but almost more importantly, how to progress your recovery psychologically, emotionally. Um, and and I, when someone says to me, oh, well, you know, do I need to wait for my six weeks appointment? I'll say, well, let me ask you this. Do you sit down and get up off the toilet? Love it. You know, well, yeah, sure. Okay, that's a squat. That's a sit to stand. That movement is a sit to stand. Do you reach into your crib to lift your baby up and out? Well, sure. Okay, that, that is torso rotation, deadlift, torso rotation. So let's start thinking about these movements, these everyday movements that we do, and how do we strengthen and support and stabilize your body through these movements? Um, and then of course, through time, you know, again, this started in the early 2000s, things were coming up, up more and more awareness about diastasis recti about pelvic organ dysfunction or, or prolapse, about urinary incontinence. How do these things all play in? So then what I started doing was I thought, well, it's not just the exercise. It's not just how do we strengthen our body. It's also educating our participants in the common disorders or the common experiences that they may experience in the postpartum period and give them resources, give them things that they can do, places that they can go, where they can find answers for the experiences that they're experiencing. I'm not a physical therapist. I'm not a licensed midwife anymore. I'm not. I work in birth as a birth doula. I am a perinatal personal trainer for many, many years. 
I combine my education as a nurse and a midwife with my education over the years in fitness. Um, I feel like I have a pretty darn good understanding of the pregnant and postpartum body. Um, and I also know that there's a lot of ways to do this thing called pregnancy and postpartum. Um, but our goal as a company is to equip and educate so that in the deep, there's hope, there's plans, there's strategies so that they feel in charge of themselves. So that, that was really where I felt because in my early postpartum, taken so by surprise by the hemorrhage, by the secondary postpartum hemorrhage, by unbelievable and prolonged dyspareunia that I was like, is sex ever gonna feel good again? I didn't know about that. We didn't learn about that in midwifery school. And we still don't learn about that in midwifery yeah. school. So that's definitely one of the missions I'm on. And I think you know that is, you know, I'm, yes. I'm all in on educating healthcare providers. And sometimes yes. that education I think is a little confusing because it can come across like I'm trying to turn healthcare professionals into trainers and that's not it. But if you don't have the vocabulary and you're not exposed to what we can do for people and the ways we talk to people, you can't right. translate that into safety in an office setting because there has to be a million pit stops between we'll just don't do that anymore and oh go do whatever you want listen to your body those are the only two options available to most healthcare providers and that's what i have a problem with <laughs> yeah and i think and one of the things that i love and that came out of postpartum recovery because it's a 6 week series we see these people coming in every single week and we're seeing them from the very early postpartum. So 10 days out of vaginal birth, six weeks out of cesarean birth, that we do have some care providers who send their cesarean birth clients to us earlier because they know that what we are doing is not, it's not kick, but you're not gonna hoop and holler in our class. I mean, you might sweat some starting week five, but it's a lot of reconnection with your body, a lot of body awareness. Um, you know, I mean, we do start with the very simplistic, let's, let's find neutral posture. What is, what is where your pelvis is in space have to do with where your rib cage is it has to do with how you breathe and how you feel. And let's try. And do you know why you move into this reverse breathing? Well, it's normal. Of course it's normal. You're not broken. Your body worked exactly as it was supposed to. But what happens is with your, growing with your growing pregnancy, that uterus pushes up, of course the ribs begin to flare. And of course you have to breathe higher in your chest because your body is working exactly as it should. It's not broken. That reverse breathing that happens in pregnancy is a compensatory measure for the growing uterus. And actually, so is that diastasis. You know that that is a normal physiological change of of pregnancy, you're not broken, but maybe you need to heal and recover from that. And maybe have an understanding of your new body 
So that is where, and we see in class, we see this, the change in their countenance as we're teaching them about their bodies, they begin to realize I'm not broken. I'm not damaged goods. Or they begin to realize, oh, so I'm not the only one who is afraid to have sex. Sometimes the only time that they've talked about having returning to sex is in our class. And, and some people say, oh, you should talk about that like in week two. And I'm like, no, because we talk about it in week five because over these five weeks, we've built this relationship with these people. We have built this sense of trust. They have built this sense of community and trust with the other folks in class. And in week five, we can have a really deep meaning conversation about dyspareunia and what you can do about that and who you can go see and that it's not forever and there is help for you. So I, I, think, I think we peddle hope <laughs> in our class. That's our drug of choice is hope and, and recovery and feeling good. Um, the, third, the third class that we teach is called Pelvic Floor Core and More. And that really came out because what was happening was like a year or two down the line, I'd have a client call me and say, do you have a refresher class for, for postpartum recovery? Because I just feel like I need a refresh. And so I said, yeah, I think I can put that together. So we did. And, um, and the way that the company grew from just me to now we have instructors in various states across the US and we're just starting to grow internationally as well um, is because folks that had been in my class, they would contact and say, you know, that class was so impactful. I'd really like to teach it. Do you do instructor trainings? And I remember at first thinking, no, I don't, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> you know, I've never done that. Um, and I always joke, you know, never say never, right? I, I always said I wouldn't do, like, I don't do instructor trainings. Uh, I don't do videos. Um, I don't do blogs. I don't do Instagram. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. And I always think it's so funny, you know, just when you think you're not going to do something, I, I always say, I will never say never anymore because sure as nuts, the minute I say, I don't do that, I end up doing it. And I think we all probably can relate to that at some level. Do you have instructors that are teaching kind of uh, in-person classes in their lo local, in their, in their location where they're from? Is everybody virtual? Like, how's it working at this point? And what's been the evolution since you started so long ago? Which, by the way, I really want to shout out to you as one of the OG people on this front, right? Because there weren't, there aren't a lot of people doing this now, but comparatively speaking, there was no one doing this in 2000. So the fact that you have been at it for this long is amazing. And that's something I didn't know about you. Oh, thank you. Well, I'll tell you what, I've learned a lot because as we, we both know, the research has changed so much, right? And so, I mean, our curriculum is constantly changing. I mean, I say to our instructors, I'm so sorry that you just printed that manual because guess what? A new one's coming out next year with new information in it. Um, 
and in, it, we're in a rewrite right now, again, of our manuals. But um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting whenever, even I'm thinking about like 2012-ish, 2011, 2012, when I first moved down to Florida. And of course, you know, you're the new gal in town. You got to kind of uh, get your name out there. And, um, and I just was reminded like how many people don't even know they're like diastasis what what what's that what do you mean recover from birth I had my six weeks appointment I can go run my marathon right so it, you know just kind of building that awareness and, and I'm so I am personally so excited by the what I feel like has been an explosion in the last couple years um, through social media, you know, thank goodness for social media. Um, in, in 2011, when I was down in Jacksonville, Florida, I knew of one pelvic floor PT, one, one. Um, now in Jacks, there's a ton of them. Up here, and I, now I spend my time partially in Knoxville, Tennessee and partially in Jacksonville in Knoxville. Um, there aren't as many, but it's growing. It's growing. And, you know, I, I love to say that, like, just as much as I would like for every woman to have a doula, I would like for them to also have a pelvic floor PT. Um, and the funny thing is, is that down in Florida, I met with the marketing person for one of the pelvic floor PT groups down there. And she said something to me that was both surprising and also kind of like, wow, that's not good. Um, which is, she said, hey, do you know that you're our number one referral? You refer more people from your classes to us than anybody else in the city. And I thought, wow, that's cool. And then the next minute I thought, wow, that's not cool. <laughs> I knew exactly what you were going to say. Exactly. It's like, oh, that's great. But like, why is it that we are we have this much knowledge and we, we still have every day. If I had a coin jar for every day that someone tells me that they're OB specifically, I hate to call out the OBs. I do it a lot more than the midwives say, oh, you don't need that. Or like refuse them the referral when they're asking for it. Like what, what is that about? Why are you so offended by someone's desire to see a pelvic floor PT? Why is it so hard to accept that it is a completely different training? It is two right. vastly different things. I spend a lot of time telling my clients that when I do a vaginal exam, whether it's with a speculum or my fingers, I'm feeling for really different things. Am I more qualified than maybe the average midwife to assess your pelvic floor musculature? Yes, because I've done a lot of continuing ed and I kind of get it, but that's not what we get in midwifery school. And my interest came backwards out of fitness, just like it has for you. Um, yes. And people really don't get that. And that's like the news flash that I want our listeners to hear is that not every vaginal or pelvic exam is the same kind of exam. Right. Depending on the kind of provider, they're looking for something different. And that is kind of just something that people don't know yet. Right. And, and, and also, I, you know, I, I like to say, like, in class, I will say to them, listen, if you, if you feel like you are wanting to see a pelvic floor PT and for whatever reason, if it's insurance or whatever, wherever you live, um, you need a referral 
and you speak to your care provider and they say, well, if it's not better, because this is something I've heard, if it's not better in three months, I'll send you for a referral. I say, your verbiage back to them is, would you like to walk around for the next three months peeing in your pants? Because I don't know about you, I really don't want to. Right. Usually you leave with a referral in your hand if you say something like that. And it's snarky and I'm not typically a snarky person, but I get snarky about that because I'm like, nobody should be told, oh, just wait another six weeks. Oh, wait, just another three months. It just takes time. Healing does take time, but there are proactive things that we can do along that journey of healing. And I always say, Pelvic floor PTs are some of my favorite people because I know that the hope and the, and the help that they provide for the population that we work with is life-changing, not just physically, but you know, emotionally. And it's such a rocky period when there's so many things going on. You know, you're sleep deprived, you are sore. Uh, you've got these body changes, you have relationship changes, you may have job changes. You know, how many changes could you list? A lot, a lot. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit and address um, one thing you mentioned about our classes. Um, Our instructors do teach in person and virtually. They can choose. And some love to teach virtually and some love to just teach in person. Prior to the pandemic, I was committed to only in-person because of the community building aspect. Um, For me, in anything I do, um, whether it's our classes or we have a thing called Walk Workout Coffee, which is a free community um, event that anybody can lead, we're happy to help them do that. And people can contact me if they would like to find out more about that. Um, but I, at the time had felt like community had to happen in person. Well, of course, with the pandemic, like many things, we started realizing, okay, you can actually, it's a different feel of community, but you can still build these communities of these folks via Zoom. So our instructors, they can choose whether they want to teach in person or virtually. And many of them do both and some of them do one or the other. Are all of your instructors listed on your website? Like, is there a mapping? How does it work for my listeners who are everywhere and sometimes outside of the country? How can they find one of your trainers? Yeah, so if they go to our website, which is number 4 and then the letters tfm.com for fourth trimester fitness method. So for tfm.com um, and go to where the classes are. There's a drop down menu and the instructors are listed there. Um, they can also go to the classes and look for a specific class. And there's a drop down menu there that will have different instructors, different time zones, different days when the classes are offered. And so they can find their their classes that way. And if they're ever looking for a class and they don't see a time listed that works for them, they can actually send us request and we will try to get that request filled. Um, Because we are all about helping the moms. We always say, 
Um, you know, our, our mission statement is improving birth and motherhood through, through movement and education. Um, but at the end of the day, we help the moms. And that may also be our instructors. You know, we, we love, I, I always charge our instructors with be the light. When you are teaching, be the light for that group. Be the joy that comes into their life for that day or for that hour or for that moment. Um, and, and so I feel like my instructor group, they are family. And I kind of feel like th the mother. Um, my nickname, my grandma nickname is Memmy. Um, my clients call themselves Memmy's Mamas. Um, and I feel like the memmy to my instructors. I'm always you know, wanting to know how they're doing and, and um, how can I help them? So we're helpers, we're helpers. That's, that's, our, that's my charge to them is to be the helper. So, so a couple of final questions to, to wrap up your story because I know I feel just like there's one little loose end here. So I just want to bring it all together with your stories. Um, so first of all, how old are your kids? Yeah, so my kids, my daughter is 34. My son is 31. Okay, so just getting the time frame here. So now yeah. just remind me, I think you talked about it a little bit, but then we really segued into talking about your business, which of course is so fascinating to me that I let you off the hook on your birth story. So you don't necessarily <laughs> have to tell me your whole second birth story because we got the gist that it was a lot more straightforward, but remind us a little bit more about how your birth experiences and your professional experiences became the link that led you to create this. I kind of need to rehear part of that. Okay. Yeah. So interestingly, my, my births were, they were eventful, but uneventful. Uh, you know, I, I labored, um, I pushed, I birthed, I postpartumed. And, you know, if you want to break it down to like super simple terms that way, um, there were aspects to each one of those births that like for every person are unique. Um, my experience with my son was, was quite different from my daughter because my daughter was born in South Africa. So she was born under that system. My son was born in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and uh, I was with an OB. And so it was more obstetric care compared to midwifery model of care. Um, when I went into labor with him, my contractions started right out the gate, two minutes apart, one minute long. And I thought I was having a precipitous labor. I thought for sure. My husband was on call. I called him. He was in residency. He was like, I don't know if I can leave. I said, well, here we go. Um, we had a crazy story. So he did get to leave. We did get in the car. We did go to the Baltimore tunnel that was closed for cleaning. <laughs> and I am sitting here every two minutes having a minute long contraction thinking, oh my golly, I'm gonna have this baby in this car. And I'm saying to my husband, you have to tell, you have to tell them, we have to go through the other side. And he kept saying, he, he's such a rule follower. He was like, we can't do that. We, we'll just, we'll be okay. And I said, no, I, you have got to tell them. We have got to go through the other side. He never did. 
He was smart though. He probably just knew me because it was another 12 hours before I had that baby. <laughs> and another beautifully sunny side up baby. Um, the thing that was pretty cool about this birth was that though it was in a teaching hospital with an OB, I had one nurse in the room with me who was eight months pregnant herself. I've always wished that I knew her name, but you know, I, I didn't write it down. I don't remember. Um, it was a very calm, peaceful birth, but I do remember my doctor saying to me, okay, Emily, I need you to give a good push. And I remember saying, I am pushing, <laughs> but because I wasn't like in that purple pushing, I just was placing this pressure in my diaphragm down through more like more of a hypnobirthing J breath, which I didn't know about at the time, um, just made sense to me. Um, I think as an athlete, you know, where do you place your force? In my diaphragm, I'm gonna move that baby down. Um, and he did birth. I remember when his head was out, I said to my doctor, he's gotta be a pound less. <laughs> and my doctor said, well, how do you know? And I said, cause his head is smaller. <laughs> Uh, and he was a pound less. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, this is um, fuel for fuel for our fires about the research that shows that you know. Thinking back to your Leopold's commentary, which I will make sure to that our clients know or our listeners rather know what all of these terms mean. Um, yes. I will put them in the show notes. But nonetheless, there's research that says that skilled hands are just as effective or just as ineffective, depending on how you want to look at it as ultrasound. But an interesting thing that people who don't know that, and then there's one more layer, is that there's research that says that if you ask the pregnant person how big their baby is, they actually come in in a statistical relevance that's not far off either. So you just in the moment did the right thing, right? Like, first of all, you have skilled hands. <laughs> so you add that in and you feel it moving through your body and you look at the baby, you're like, this baby's a pound smaller. <laughs> yep, absolutely. I love it. My last yeah. question for you is, okay. if, how do you think, especially since you work as a doula and in many hospitals at this point, so you really see a lot, I think possibly even more than a midwife who's still in practice right now, who's kind of in their own groove and does things their way and is in one facility all the time. What do you think, what do you suspect might be different about the birth you had if you had it 30 plus years later and in the United States, anything? Yeah, I think it would have been actually quite a different um, birth depending on where I had that baby. Because one of the things that we know is that choosing your care provider and your venue is really important. <laughs> and when you choose a practice to make sure that every single care provider in that practice is on the same page as what you are looking for. Um, because you might have six care providers, but one of them is out in left field and that will change the trajectory of your labor and birth, which can possibly change the trajectory of other labors and births, right? So the thing that, that I found, I think that had I had my daughter in the United States, I think it would have been a more medical 
model. I think I would have had Pitocin. I think the patience factor maybe not have been, and by patience, I mean the ability to wait and be able to wait for uh, my body to move this baby. Um, it may have been different, but again, that would be determined by the care provider. Um, for, for example, in Jacksonville alone, um, and, and I know that anybody who works in birth, this is not a shocking statement, but in Jacksonville alone, I can guess the trajectory of a labor and birth before it has happened sometimes just by who the care provider is, right? Um, and so of course I have my favorites <laughs> that I prefer to work with um, because of the way they honor the birth process. Um, and quite frankly, I feel a little sad for those that haven't been able to experience the wonder of an unintervened patient birth because it is truly something to behold. Um, you know, you just walk out of there and you feel like Shazam. <sighs> that was incredible, you know? Um, so it's hard for me to guess how the birth would have been different other than I think it would have been more managed. Sure. It no, I totally get that we're speculating and guessing, yeah. but I, I can't help but think that you've thought about that. Um, as someone who has seen birth in a lot of different environments, um, mm -hmm. and you know, just the passage of time. Again, I, I, part of what I find so interesting about asking someone to tell their birth story with 34 years remove is you're telling this story just about as clearly as my one week postpartum mamas debrief their birth stories to me. Um, mm -hmm. There are a couple details that you didn't know that I found surprising because I just thought that the midwife aspect would make you get that detail and know that detail forever. Like the fact that you don't know exactly how long your labor or second stage was is so interesting to me, but it, it makes sense when you frame it in the context of your personality. So this being the first birth story I've recorded for this season, I have to say this was so interesting to me. I hope our listeners are finding this just as interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm just really fascinated by not only your stories, but your professional journey. And I really admire the work you're doing. And I, I'm looking forward to sharing all of your uh, information with our listeners and hopefully you get some outreaches. Um, tell us where to find you on Instagram. I think that's the only thing we haven't shared yet. Okay, so um, Instagram account is fourth trimester fitness method. Um, and all written out in words. All, yeah, all okay. written out in words. Sorry, folks. Um, and the goal of Instagram is really to educate there, you sure. know, um, and, and I, my reach on Instagram is everywhere from birthing parents to doulas to care providers, um, because I, I, do doula trainings. I do nurse and services. Um, I'm excited. I'll be speaking at ACNM in May. Um, so I don't know, are you going? It'd be fun to see you there. I did not sign up to go this year, but I gave a talk on fitness in 2020 when we went suddenly virtual because of the pandemic. So I am 
thrilled to hear that you are doing the same. Um, that's very exciting. Congratulations yeah, in advance. Thank you. So the, the, you know, and again, the goal of our Instagram account is really to just share information, share tips, um, share strategies, share information. So hopefully to better birth better birth. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for your openness and willingness to share. You're welcome. I always say I'm an open book and thank you for having me. I'm very honored to be your first. You got to practice on me. I know <laughs> lots of fun. You made it very easy. Thank you so much. All right, girl. Bye. Bye. It's me, Tanya, your host here at the Motherwit Podcast. You know I sometimes invite my clients on the show to talk about their birth stories and postpartum experiences, but I want to tell you a little bit more about what those clients and I actually do together. I started Motherwit to help people in the perinatal period achieve their health and wellness goals. That means whether you're hoping to conceive and struggling with high blood pressure or high blood sugar, or you're having trouble managing anxiety or depression in the postpartum period, or maybe you just need support and advocacy between prenatal or postpartum visits, I can help. Get a discount on your first consultation with me at motherwitmaternity.com using the code FIRSTCONSULT10% OFF. That's one zero percent symbol, all one word. I'm looking forward to working with you and maybe having you on the show too.